Now on Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise. And I'm Annie. And today I'm not covering a missing person because we're going to leave those to Annie. But I'm <laughs> I'm not even covering a murder today. And I realize that probably seems a little strange given the fact that this is a true crime podcast. But today we're going to be talking about how a dead body was used to trick perhaps one of the worst criminals in history. A man who would be responsible for the deaths of over 2 million innocent people. I'm excited for this. This is definitely a pivot from our normal, but... I'm ready. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if I ended up covering quite a few stories from this time history. When I was in fifth or sixth grade, we had to read, and why are all my cases going back to mandatory English reading? <laughs> but <laughs> Your teachers are going to be so proud to hear that. I know. We read Number the Stars by Lewis Lowry, and it's a bizarre thing to become or to say that you became obsessed with the Holocaust and everything World War II, but I truly was. I just couldn't wrap my head around, especially my young little brain, how people could do such horrible, horrible things to each other, how people could be convinced so deeply that they were better than their neighbor more worthy than their neighbor. And so I began reading pretty much anything I could get my hands on about this time in history. And when I lived in Washington, D.C., I visited the Holocaust Memorial quite a few times. And I don't know if, Annie, you've been there or if our listeners have been there, but it is a must-go if you're ever in D.C. It's incredibly moving. I don't think I ever left there without tears running down my face. It's it's just different when you read the stories and then you see the artifacts. There's a room that I've talked to some of my friends and they all felt the same, that this one particular room has shoes that were taken to, from the Jewish people as they entered the ghettos or the concentration camps. And it's just piles and piles of shoes. And that doesn't seem that poignant until you realize every belonging was taken from these people and stripped from these people. And the size of the shoes is what mm. really gets you because it's that would not, break me. It does. I mean, it's not just adults; it's little kids. That I mean, how do you even explain it to them? So, I don't really know how best to explain it, but it has stayed with me. And these stories from history need to be told and they need to be remembered. But today, we aren't talking about the brutality and genocide at the hands of the Nazi forces and Hitler. Instead, we are talking about a secret mission, a corpse with a fake identity a love affair that may have turned from fiction to autobiographical, the creator of James Bond, and how it all ties together to fool Adolf Hitler. I feel like this is a Lifetime movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's better than that because this is a true story. It's the morning of April 3rd, 1943, and two fishermen are off the coast of Sicily, and they see in the water what they first believe to be a porpoise. I think any human in their right mind would be very curious about seeing a porpoise and want to investigate a little further because who doesn't love a dolphin encounter, especially in its natural habitat? We don't like SeaWorld around here. It unfortunately was not a dolphin. We made the joke in past episodes, it's never a mannequin. Well, in this case, it wasn't a dolphin. It was the decomposing and floating body of a British soldier, a soldier named Major William Martin. Attached to Major Martin's belt loop was a leather-covered chain that secured a briefcase, and around his neck was the cross of St. Christopher. Now, who was Major Martin, and what the heck had happened to him? Well, that would be dependent on who you asked, or more so, what story you were led to believe. During this time, World War II is raging, and Allied forces have taken over North Africa, but they have to make headway into Europe to stop the Nazi forces who have taken over most of Western Europe. There's only two real possibilities for the Allied troops to make it into Europe. Now, listeners... 
this might be a good time if you're a little geographically challenged and you're not driving to open a map of Europe because I was getting a little lost in the research. Winston Churchill, who had called up the U.S., they're trying to plot this all out. And their best route was to go through what Winston Churchill referred to as Europe's soft underbelly. They could go through Sicily. If they had control of that island, then they could safely get troops and supplies through the Mediterranean Sea and get enough Allied forces to really meet head on with these increasingly number of German forces. The second option was to go through Greece and trap the German troops between the British and American troops in Greece and the Soviets. However, that seemed like a bit of a long shot. And the obvious choice to those who have much more analytical wartime minds than mine felt like this was the obvious choice. They had to go through Sicily. But German forces would also know this, right? It's obvious. If it's obvious to us, it's obvious to them. So they needed the Germans to believe they were going to invade Greece. But how? Now we're going to take you back a couple years, because a few years earlier in 1939, Rear Admiral John Godfrey circulated something called the Trout Memo. Now, I thought this was named after someone named Trout, but no, turns out... Is it like a fish? (laughs) It is. This is a paper that compared deceiving a war opponent to fly fishing of all these things. Wow. So I feel like this man and my dad would probably get along quite well, but... This is where the James Bond reference comes in, because something fun to note is that while Admiral Godfrey is credited as being the author of this Trout Memo, it's actually believed that it was written by Ian Fleming. If that name sounds familiar to you, he was the assistant to Godfrey, so directly under him, but he would later go on to write the famous James Bond novels, give us all those 007 stories that became movies, and, you know, in my personal opinion... Had some very fine looking men starring in them. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I (laughs) retweet. And this list had a number of hypothetical ways to mislead the German army. But number 28 on that list is where our man, Major William Martin, would come into play. Number 28 read A suggestion, not a very nice one, was an idea to plant misleading papers on a corpse that would be found by the enemy. This sounds a little wild, right? It's so cool, though. Like, they were, I mean, this is number 28. They had a lot of ideas around this time. They sure did. And it's not that wild because it had, in fact, been done before. Mm. Twice before, in fact. In August 1942, a corpse was intentionally placed in a blown-up military vehicle, and they purposefully put a map on the corpse's body showing British minefields. So here come the Nazis investigating this car that they'd blown up, this tank, whatever it was, but a vehicle. And they find this map. They're thinking, oh, perfect. Now we can navigate around all these British minefields. But they weren't minefields at all. They were actually areas of soft sand that would slow down the German tanks. Okay, that's super interesting. Yeah, and they fell for it. So it really helped slow down the German tanks, all of their troops, because... I just picture, and I'm sure this is an exaggeration, but I just picture quicksand from cartoons. <laughs> and they're like, ha, 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 we found the you know safest route, and now they're just slowly sinking. But then the next month in September of 1942, it accidentally happened again, except this time it was not planned. A military aircraft flying from Britain crashed in Cadiz, a city in southwest Spain, and everyone on board unfortunately lost their lives, including a courier and French agent Lieutenant James Turner, who had all sorts of top-secret, you-can't-look-at-this-stuff-without-proper-clearance type paperwork. Turner's body washed ashore and was recovered by Spanish authorities. Little side note, Spain was supposed to be like Switzerland at this time. They're like, we're neutral, we're not getting involved in your guys' petty nonsense. No thank you. But in Spain, there was a lot of Nazi sympathizers. And even though the documents did return with Turner's body, it was determined that they had been copied. But because of what had just happened the month before, the German army thankfully dismissed this very true information they found on the body as another scheme and totally dismissed it. Wow. But they could have really had everything in the palm of their hands because this guy was legit. Absolutely. He's carrying all of this top secret correspondence and they have it just basically delivered to them by the Spanish, and they go, "Mm, no, remember what happened last month? This is a little too good to be true. This can't be real. 
So we're kind of one for two here. Allied forces have planted misinformation on a corpse, and it was believed. And then unintentionally, a corpse washes ashore with all this secret information, but they dismiss it as another ruse. So could Major William be the lucky number three? Could they fake out Hitler and the German army? Well, that's where a British intelligence officer, Charles, and I'm going to spell this out because this is ridiculous. C-H-O-M-O-N-D-E-L-E-Y. If that was a spelling word, I would fail the spelling bee, especially because that long word is just pronounced chumly. Someone just threw some letters together. <laughs> Chumley does not need that no, many consonants. No, it doesn't. <laughs> consonants. <laughs> That's too many. Where's the D coming from? <laughs> anyway, thank you, Mr. Chumley, for pronouncing that way, because that is going to make the rest of this episode significantly easier for me. <laughs> anyway, Charles Chumley was in the Royal Air Force before being appointed as secretary of the Secret 20 Committee, the team that was in charge of double agents. Annie, you know me, and I like to get sidetracked. And I was like, why was it called the 20 Committee? I was wondering the same thing. I'm glad you were because I found the answer. The 20 Committee gamed its name from the Roman XX, which stands for the number 20. It was a visual pun on the phrase double cross. Oh, And these were double agents that they were in charge of. So it actually, for once, makes sense. Yeah. He presented his idea based on that trout memo for Operation Trojan Horse. Now, in my opinion, if you know anything about history at all, this code name is not much of a code name. It's a little too on the nose. But his idea was to take a body from a London hospital, fill the lungs with water, and put documents inside the pockets, then drop him in enemy territory, letting the Nazi forces think that he was shot down or his parachute had failed. The 20 committee quickly poo-pooed the name and then weren't really sure on the idea itself. This is not feeling very secretive here, Mr. Chumley. They thought the idea had a little bit of merit, but the details needed to be reworked. Because I like the idea. I think it does make sense. But I think the two back-to-back incidences of like, number one, they knew they were being misled. Number two, they actually had what was going on and they didn't use it. Is that why they're hesitant about it? I think that there was just no fine-tuning the details. It was kind of like the Trout Memo, where it Mm -hmm. was just a hypothetical idea. Like this big idea, but how to execute it's really where they were questioning it. Got it. So they contacted Ewan Montague, a lawyer who had volunteered when the war broke out and ended up working at the Naval Intelligence Division handling counter-espionage work, which, I mean, to be alive during this time would be terrible for very many people, and I realize that. But to be in this line of work, you're like, you're an actual spot. I love the word espionage. Right? It makes me want to put like a black jumpsuit on and, I don't know, do a somersault on the floor with a handgun. <laughs> and like change our identity. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why my first thought was a somersault, but I guess I wouldn't be very good at that job. <laughs> You'd be a really bad spy. Just somersaulting around. Like, Elise, we got things to do. And you're like, hang on one second. This is my moment. <laughs> Look at my cool move, my ninja right. move. I've been practicing. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, um, not sure if you realize, but we're in 2022. We do all this via the computer, and I'm just, <laughs> I'm picturing this too much now. I mean, just somersaulting from like computer to the printer. <laughs> oh goodness. Well, he was assigned to help Chumley work out the kinks. They reached out to a pathologist to figure out what sort of body they would need in the first place to even fool a Spanish pathologist into believing the corpse had died at sea. Pathologist Bernard Spilsbury told them that if they wanted to make them believe he had died in a crash, this really surprised me. The corpse's lungs wouldn't actually need to be filled with water, as most will die before impact from shock. Oh, that is interesting. Right. So that gives them a little wider range, they, mm-hmm. something to work with there. But he also advised them of something that would become very crucial later. He said, if you're going to drop this body in Spain, think about maybe placing some documents or something along those lines, making sure that they think that this officer is Roman Catholic. And the reason for that is most Spaniards at the time were also Roman Catholic, and they would be adverse to doing postmortems unless finding the cause of death was suspicious, like with a murder or a politician, someone of a really high rank. They didn't want to mess with a corpse. It was against a lot of their religious beliefs unless they absolutely had to. 
wow, that makes sense. They don't want that bad juju on them, especially if it comes to religion. Absolutely. So next they contacted, get this name, Bentley Purchase. <laughs> I'm telling you, what? I was researching this late at night. and like, I Am was, I going crazy? <laughs> I thought, okay, it's time to put the computer away. Because that is this man's real name, and he is the London coroner. I'm speechless. Bentley Purchase. This man, if World War II hadn't been going on, he was destined to become like a star or something. Truly. Because that is just, that is quite the name. It is. He was known for having a bit of a morbid humor. Well, same. Me too. And told them, I should think bodies are the only commodity not in short supply at the moment. But even with bodies all over the place, each one does need to be accounted for. Bringing up the fact that, what if I find a body that works for you? What about their family? What about friends that come to claim them? What about the rest of the military? Because while they were working for British intelligence, nobody could know about this. This is a secret operation. So maybe if a common officer were to pass away, his general might have questions about where the body turned up or whatever the case might be. So they needed a man that basically had no backstory. A John Doe. Correct. But on January 28th, 1943, Coroner Purchase, again that name, wow, called up Montague to let him know that he had a suitable body. Glendor, I listened to the pronunciation of this, guess how this is spelled? G-L-Y-N-D-W-R. Now we have no vowels. A random W. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, bear with me about these names. There is some speculation about if this is the corpse's true identity, and we can get into that a little bit later, but this is the most widely believed story, that the identity does in fact belong to Glendor Michael. Mr. Michael was a Welsh man who had a really tragic backstory. His father had committed suicide when he was 15, and his mother later died, I'm not sure how, when he was only 31. At this point, he doesn't have family, you know, immediate family to claim him because he didn't have any brothers or sisters. Unfortunately, he had come to London homeless, and without much going for him in the positive column, he became fatally ill when he injected rat poison. Oh, A lot of people say this was suicide, but I want to propose a different idea. I think given that he was found in an abandoned warehouse and the rat poison was on a piece of bread, the more likely situation is that he was just incredibly hungry and they had put this poison on bread trying to attract rats. Instead of luring rats, obviously he's very hungry. It entices him a little bit for this free piece of bread, not knowing that there was poison on it. I agree with that way more than suicide. Right. It seems odd for someone to travel all the way from, where was he born? Wales, all the way to London to commit suicide. Does not add up. I think that the bread rat poison theory is definitely what happened. And it wasn't enough rat poison to even kill him right away. So he might not have tasted it. I don't know what rat poison tasted around in 1943, but I'm just giving this man the benefit of the doubt that he was hungry, homeless, kind of destitute and on the streets, and he found what he thought was a scrap piece of bread, maybe from a worker in the warehouse. Yeah. And it's just, it's a really sad tale. But either way, this made him very, very ill, as you can imagine. And he died just two days later. A long two days, I'm sure. Yes. Well, and that's what I'm going to get into, because that rat poison had something called phosphorus in it. What happens when phosphorus mixes with hydrochloric acid, which is the acid that is sitting in your stomach all day long, helps you break down food. But when these two mix, it creates something called phosphine, and that is an incredibly toxic gas. I did a little research because it was mentioned why this particular way of dying would have been the perfect situation to make someone believe that a corpse had drowned and washed ashore. Phosphine actually causes pulmonary edema, or in non-medical terms, your lungs fill up with fluid. It's a result of this gas. So why it is, I imagine, incredibly painful and awful death, this would look like a drowning victim. When the Spanish discovered him, not only would he have the fluid in his lungs like a drowning victim, but since their religious beliefs instructed them to leave a corpse at peace, like we discussed earlier, unless it's absolutely medically necessary... The fluid in the lungs would be enough to sign it off as a drowning victim. 
Wow, this was truly the best case scenario for them. Not for him. I mean, I feel horrible for the guy. We'll see how horrible you feel later. Because he ended up doing something pretty cool with his life. He just wasn't around for it. So Purchase said he would keep the body cold, but that the body needed to be used within three months or it would be worthless to them. This body couldn't be embalmed, so it just had to be kept cold. And so it's still going to be decomposing. Mm -hmm. So he is estimated at three months, it's a no-go. This body is going to be too bad. I still feel like three months is a good runway time. I'm kind of shocked that it's that long. Um, Me too. But again, I don't want to get too gruesome here. But if a body is in a prolonged period of being submerged, it's going to decompose a lot faster. True. And he's just in a freezer. Right. So okay. if they're to believe that he got gunned down or he, you know, went into the water, your body would decompose a lot faster. So it might kind of tie into a body that had been, you know, just kept cold up until this point. The team has three months. We are now in like critical time. And this mission hasn't been approved. It's still just a hypothetical that they're presenting. So they sprung into action. They had the body. But while the Internet wasn't a thing yet, doesn't mean that German intelligence wouldn't do a little homework if they found, especially after these past two scenarios I told you about, if they find a corpse washing ashore. They'd already been tricked and they weren't going to fall for it again. And it's kind of funny to me because we, I don't know if you've ever said this, but I always can tell if someone is lying to me or stretching the truth when they give me too many details that are unnecessary. Oh, yeah. I used to do that playing hooky. I'd be like, I don't feel good. I had pancakes for breakfast and I threw them up. Then I tried to drink a glass of milk and my mom's like, no, 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 this is not working. <laughs> yeah. When you give too many details, people are like, because uh, you're just trying to fill in like empty space. Yes. And you're like, please believe me. Please believe me. Okay. If I tell you that the pancakes also contain milk and I'm lactose intolerant, then then uh, yes. And then that ended up hurting my stomach. And then, uh, and then my dog died. <laughs> and you're like, wait, how did I get there? <laughs> it's just like way too much information. But in this case, not only did they need all of those details, they needed the paperwork, they needed a backstory, and even in this case, they wanted to create a love story to make Major William Martin come to life. Oh, I love the love story. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to like this, I think. Oh, it gets a little scandalous. First, he needed a name. Martin was picked because it was such a common name during that time that if the Nazis were to look up Officer Martin, Major Martin... There would be tons that would just, you know, flood the results. Mm -hmm. I'm saying flood the results. They, again, are not Googling. <laughs> they would have a few cards in their Rolodex with that name on it. <laughs> They needed to give him the rank of major because it wouldn't be odd that someone with that rank would be trusted with secret documents but wasn't so high up like an admiral that people would be aware of him. He wouldn't be talked about in the news. He wouldn't be a standing fixture in this world war. So what about his personal life? Well, that is where something called pocket litter came in. When I first heard this term, I thought, okay. Um, I'm thinking like lint. That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> well, this was a, actually a term used in espionage to create a story for one of their spies. If any of us were found, you could expect that our purses probably would hold a lot of clues as to who we were. Not just our IDs, but maybe hints on our life. Think about your purse right now. Mine would probably have dog hair in it, so you would know I'm a pet owner, for sure. Mine has like 10 things of chapstick, so you know I have some luscious lips. They're always, <laughs> always hydrated. But I know what you mean. A photo in a wallet. Right. Or it yeah. could be the clue that if you have 10 chapsticks, you live in a dry environment and your lips are always chapped. Yeah. This is all stuff that tells our story. For instance, I wrote down when I was thinking about what would be in my pocket litter, quote unquote, you know, even something as small as the parking garage tickets that I never throw away for where I work. How much information could you find out about that? What time what? I went into work, what the area that I live in potentially. So this is all considered pocket litter. I love the term now. I know. Pocket litter. I'm going to be like, I got to clean out my purse. I have too much pocket litter. <laughs> and I can't do my somersaults and, and do <laughs> grand espionage if I have any pocket litter on me. <laughs> Man, my gymnastics teacher from when I was eight is probably just rolling right now, going, yeah, you couldn't do it a somersault can't then. Do it then you probably can't do it now. <laughs> I don't know why you're talking about somersaults at 35. Well, anyway, this fictitious soldier needed a reason to come home from war, something dear to look forward to, and that is where fictitious fiancé Pam comes in. Pam! 
I've been watching The Office. I talked about that last episode, but I have a visual now for Pam. And it actually, that's funny you mentioned this because in real life, Pam was an MI5 clerk. So a secretary named Pam named Jean Leslie, also great name. She provided a very seductive picture of her on the beach in a swimsuit for her lover to carry along with him, as well as two steamy love letters that weren't written by her, but actually these are you know, their words, not mine, kind of the spinster of the secretaries in this (laughs) department with writing out some fantasies in these love letters. And in a show of dedication to Pam, he would also have a receipt for a diamond ring. Oh, so Pam's getting engaged. Okay, question. Pam, obviously the picture is a real person, but this is a fictitious person. They just found a picture of a woman. Like, how did they get that photo? Basically, they went around, you know, this group of secret cover agents are like hey um hey secretaries because that's you know all women were good for at the time hey secretaries um anybody got any hot photos laying around (laughs) okay so pam did she she probably didn't even know she was helping with this big mission she did to a point she was a clerk for mi5 but she wasn't aware of the details at this time it's a little unclear whether she became a little bit more aware of them later on but we will get to that again pam is fictitious Jean Leslie is the real Pam. Got it. If you have watched the movie Operation Mincemeat, which got me hooked on this case, they will paint the picture that Jean Leslie, fake Pam, and Montague were in a quite a torrid love affair, truly becoming Pam and William. Montague in real life was married, but his wife and kids had fled to America. But it's hypothesized that they went a little too far in their game of pretend. But Jean would later say in an interview, We went to the cinema and we went dancing around somewhat. Ewan was a much, much older man and I had other gentlemen around at that age. I was only 18 or 19. I suppose that I enjoyed the excitement of the whole thing. I would live the part of Pam, yes. And that is the end quote. Which leaves a lot to the imagination, especially when Jean ended up giving Ewan Montague a copy of the photograph that she had volunteered to be put into the pocket of this fake soldier. But on his copy, she wrote, Till death do us part, your loving Pam. Wow, she was really living her best two identities. Right. So perhaps she's being a little coy or just doesn't want to admit to having an affair. But it definitely adds to the dynamics of this story that these people were so caught up in creating this fake life for the soldier that they almost adopted it as their own. In the movie, it portrays them going to the cinema together to get the tickets to put in his pocket. And that all could be very true. But personally, I'm a sucker for a romance story, especially one that is not supposed to happen. So I'm going to choose to believe that these two got so caught up in this bizarre role play that they blurred the lines between their fictitious characters and who they were in real life. I feel like Pam has red hair. I got to look at a picture of Jean. Are there any photos out there? Yes, there is the one of her in that swimsuit. But remember, this is 1943. It's a black and white photo, Annie. <laughs> oh, I feel like just because you're telling the story and you have red hair and you have these glasses on, I feel like you are Pam. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, at this point, I'd probably believe a fake boyfriend existed, too. (laughs) Give me a little pocket litter and I'll create a backstory for you all. (laughs) So now he has a fiance. But what else could they place on him to make this believable? Well, first, his uniform was worn by Chumley almost daily to make it look properly worn in. They also added to his pocket litter. I'm going to say that. Don't drink every time I say pocket litter because it's just such a fun little phrase to say. It's so fun. (laughs) They added to his pocket litter. Shots, everyone. With a note from Martin's father. Again, didn't exist. An overdraft statement from the bank. Maybe he overdid it with buying that engagement ring for Pam. A book of stamps, some cigarettes, matches, keys, all the things you would expect to find. But they needed to create a timeline of his life in London. So they put in ticket stubs from the theater and a bill for four nights at a hotel. Perhaps he was in town, you know, wine and dining Pam. They also made sure to include that St. Christopher medallion and a cross on him. For those who aren't Catholic... St. Christopher is the patron saint of travelers. Many people have a St. Christopher medallion as a symbol and like lucky charm, if you will, for safe travel and protection. But by placing this medallion and cross on him, it would hopefully signify 
to the mainly Roman Catholic Spaniards that he was also Catholic and hopefully they would not do an extensive autopsy out of respect for his religious beliefs. I am so impressed at how far his backstory is going. I mean, the cigarettes, the hotel receipt, the necklace. This is amazing. Did you end up pulling up the picture of Pam? I didn't. Okay. We're going to put it on our Instagram. I'm going to have you look it up right now because it is kind of a spicy photo for the time period. Oh, it is. She definitely has, she definitely like a brunette, I feel like. Well, maybe she is a redhead. Yeah, she has her arms crossed, kind of like a seductive look. Yeah, she is in a swimsuit with a little blanket or towel wrapped around her on a beach. Like, very believable that a lover took this photo. 100%. Wow. I'm going to try my best not to giggle on this part because it's a bit morbid, but like Mr. Purchase the Corner, I have a bit of a morbid um, humor. No. A bit of dark humor. I mean, it's shocking no. that I do have a true crime <laughs> podcast. But one of the more difficult parts of creating this fake life for Major Martin was getting his military ID together. They needed a picture for this ID. Now, this is a little difficult when your subject has been dead for a good amount of time at this point. And in a freezer. But that didn't stop them from trying. (laughs) (laughs) The scene in the movie had me absolutely rolling. And obviously, they took a lot of creative license here, I'm sure. But it is true that they tried their best to get an adequate picture of the corpse to make him look alive. Needless to say, it did not work out so well. (laughs) I'm picturing like this corpse kind of like falling over and like not not a good sight. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, and how is he supposed to smile? Like, they just pinch his cheek and, like, hope for rigor mortis to suddenly set right. in, like, weeks later. It's, this is where, to me, they were trying a little too hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I see the need for the ID. Oh, of course. I have seen a real picture of the state of Glindor's corpse at this point. There's no way they were going to get a picture of him that would look even remotely believable. I don't care how much they tattered or weathered the photo. This man was real, real dead. Let's just put it that way. (laughs) So they end up in an unrelated meeting, and Captain Ronnie Reed happened to be in attendance. He worked for MI5, and he looked remarkably, remarkably, almost like brothers to Glendor. At least that's what they said. I've only seen a picture of Glendor in his corpse form, so I can't attest to that. He agreed to be photographed in the uniform, and they issued a replacement ID for major martin so smart i didn't i I would just never think of these things but that's why probably my first thought is somersaulting as a spy they needed to make sure that the ids didn't look brand new because that's going to raise some suspicion especially if he's been in the military long enough to become a major however replacement ids i mean i lose my id i've had to send off for a new one so this one could look mm, somewhat new and not raise a whole lot of eyebrows Then Montague spent nearly three weeks rubbing the ID cards on his trousers to replicate the worn-in sheen they would have by being kept perhaps in the back pocket or front pocket of the uniform. Like, these men thought of everything. The attention to detail. Holy cow. I would, I just would never think of this stuff, but that's why I have a podcast and I'm not working for the CIA. (laughs) Or are we? She says she rolls off camera. (laughs) While the somersault (laughs) gets stuck halfway up. (laughs) The most important part, though, we have the idea. We have everything together to create a backstory, but the body alone is not going to fool the German army. They needed fake documents that would be enough to convince German intelligence that the Allied forces were going to attack through Greece. Monaco said that there was three main points these documents had to cover. First, the target needed to be casually but clearly identified, that it should name Sicily and another location as covers, and that it should be an unofficial correspondence, more friendly in nature, not something too secretive, but something that would normally be sent by encoded signal or by a courier. To kind of seem a little bit less, like, forced and placed. Exactly. And force is the right word choice, Annie, because they tried to write this letter numerous times and just could not get it right i can only imagine a bunch of men sitting on a desk like no daryl you messed it up (laughs) don't say that like give me this give me this let me try it again nothing seemed to fit so they realized what in the world are we trying to do right this like we're we're good at our job why not just go directly to the source so they had lieutenant general archibald nye 
the names in this story, my goodness. He was the vice chief of the Imperial General Staff, and with a name like that, it's clear that this man was privy to a lot of secret things that were going on in the military. He wrote a letter to General Harold Alexander. The letter talked about some actual military going-ons, and then it included the deception. He said that they had received information that the Germans were strengthening their defenses in Greece, which was true, and that they hadn't had enough forces to even think about attacking them. Kind of playing up to, we need to send reinforcements to Greece because that's where we're going to invade from. Ah. He added that because of this, they were going to be sending reinforcements in, and he ended it with justifications for using Sicily as a cover target, but that they would in fact be sending the troops to help attack in Greece. Remember when I said they thought of absolutely everything? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, they really did, because in another forged document, they had a letter of introduction from Martin's commanding officer saying Major Martin was a warfare expert and was, quote, on loan into them until the assault was over, end quote. They included this in an envelope that had a single black eyelash placed wow. into it. Their thought was if they received these documents back from Sp- from SpaghettiO. <laughs> <laughs> Their thought was if they received these documents back from Spain, again, Spain is supposed to be neutral at this time and would be expected to return all wartime fines back to their country of origin. Well, if they opened that envelope and the eyelash was not in it anymore, then the Spanish or the Germans had opened the envelope. Genius. It is genius, but it's also really crazy to think that the fate of the war was on an eyelash. Literally <laughs> on a dead man and an eyelash. And then we wonder like, oh, why didn't they really want to go for this idea right away? <laughs> well, this, I'm mind blown. There's a lot of variables. And yeah. I need to know if it was Jean's eyelash, but I couldn't find that anywhere. I'm just like a nice long one. She's like, I'll, I'll give my DNA here, you know. I'll kiss it. <laughs> she put her little yeah. Maybelline <laughs> mascara on. So now we have the fake history in place, fake documents in place, a very loving fake fiancé and her eyelash. Everything is in place, and it was time for them to put their plan into action. So on the 13th of April, 1943, Churchill finally gave the go-ahead to move forward with Operation Mincemeat. Mincemeat. I know you said it a few times this episode, but I'm just picturing like hamburger. Right. Operation codenames at that time were not something that was made up at random. They were actually just recycled and reused. So this was not them making a joke about the use of a corpse. This was just the next one in line. Like we name hurricanes by the alphabet. It was the same thing for them that they just recycled names. I feel like mincemeat makes sense because it's a dead body. But that's crazy that it was kind of just like by luck, you know. This was happenstance, but it sure fit the bill. Four days later, they dressed Glendare as Major Martin. There was one glitch, though. His feet had frozen. Oh, no. They couldn't get his boots on. (laughs) And they are on a time crunch because now he is out of the fridge. So they had to use an electric heater to quickly thaw his feet just enough to get the boots on, but not enough that his feet would just, excuse me being crude, but potentially just fall off. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) The frozen feet. He had some cold feet about this mission. Yes, he did. (laughs) Good pun, Annie. (laughs) They then placed the fake Major Martin documents in briefcase and his darling's picture in his pocket and put him into a canister with 21 pounds of dry ice. What is your first thought about the reasoning for dry ice? Because it doesn't, like, melt and it won't make him all soggy, but he's going in the water. I thought kind of the same thing, that they just needed to keep him cold for the Mm -hmm. journey. Well, this is pretty incredible. The dry ice was not meant to keep the body frozen, but instead, if you've ever seen dry ice, quote-unquote, melt, it doesn't turn into a liquid. It instead sublimates or turns into a foggy gas that we all like to go, ooh, and the Mm -hmm. cocktail comes over and has one dry ice cube, and we think that, like, this is the witch's brew or something. seems real fantastical when it comes over in a martini glass. Well, when dry ice sublimates, it would fill the canister with carbon dioxide, basically snuffing out any oxygen in the canister 
So the body wouldn't need to be cold. It would naturally be preserved because the oxygen is not breaking it down. They have truly thought of it all. I keep saying it, but like, what? Oh, it was incredible. They then hired an MI5 driver who, before the war, had been a race car driver. They needed to get this body where it was going real fast, and he was Pronto. the man for the job. <laughs> so they drove through the night with Chumley and Montague in the back of the van with this giant canister to meet submarine HMS Seraph. They didn't tell the crew of their plan, only the commander of the submarine. They obviously, there's a lot of double agents. They don't know who to trust. So they really had to depend on just the commander to know this plan and to carry it out. Instead, they told the crew that the canister held a meteorological device that needed to be deployed near Spain. Sounds believable to me. If you're going to attack somewhere, you got to know what the weather forecast is. Yeah. So at 4.15 a.m. on April 30th, the Seraph surfaced and Commander Jewel had the canister brought back up to the deck of the submarine. He then sent the entire crew, except for a few choice trusted officers, back below deck. They lowered the body into the water, read a Bible verse, and then he gave the order for the engines to be turned on full force. Their hopes was the force of the engines in the water would help to push the body towards the shore. How close was this to land? Do we know? About a mile. Okay, so not not that far. But far enough to not be suspicious where anyone's like seeing the submarine. Again, still a lot of wiggle room for things to go wrong. Like I mean, a shark. The ocean is full of <laughs> predators. Yeah. <laughs> Just five hours later, those fishermen would find the body. The body was taken to Hilvia. I like it. Hilvia. I don't think that's right, but we're going to go it. with it. <laughs> and just as they hoped, tongues started wagging about the body and briefcase that had been found off the shore. Simultaneously, the British, still back in Europe, knowing that their communications had been intercepted, started to use that to their advantage. So they sent messages about the importance of this briefcase, this lost soldier, in the hopes that they would decode it. And start the Germans going, okay, what, what are they talking about? And piecing that together with the intelligence that they would get about a body coming to shore. I do like this approach because the first body was found in a tank. The second was found in an act like a car uh, accident or a plane crash. A plane crash. So like those are very specific. Okay, come to this, come to the scene of the crime and check it out. This is in the middle of the ocean, the middle, a mile off. So I do like where this is going. So far, their plan... As outlandish as it truly was when you really think about it, it has worked perfectly. And on May 1st, the autopsy began. But just as hoped, as they undressed him, they saw... The cross. The cross and St. Christopher. Wow. They very quickly wrote Major Martin's death and said that he died of his asphyxiation through immersion at sea death certificate was signed and the very next day the body was released by the spanish and major martin's remains were buried with full military honors wow so they only had the body in their possession for about a day and a half exactly as planned and what about that uh confidential information right so what about the briefcase well, it made its way to Madrid where it got the attention of a senior agent of the Abwehr. I did not know what that was. But what either. that is is the German intelligence agency. So we have MI5 and then we have Abwehr. And he got the Spanish to hand over the documents just temporarily, of course. The letters were dried, photographed, and then so that no one would be the wiser or so they thought, they soaked this letter in salt water for 24 hours before slipping it back into the envelope and resealing the wax seal. To make it look like they never opened it. Correct. Then they return it to the Spanish and the Spanish then returned it to the British government. But what is it missing? The eyelash! <laughs> You're so right. So everything looked perfect. The agent for German intelligence thought these documents were so important that he actually left personally back to Germany to deliver the information. As for the British, they got the documents back, but without that eyelash. And with further testing on the letters, they knew at least this phase of their plan had been executed perfectly because they could see the envelopes had been reopened and had been folded back incorrectly 
while they were damp. Wow. I keep saying wow, but I'm just, I've never, I have never heard of this. The fact that this was about a war and an eyelash and Pam and a London guy who ate bread with rat poison on it. Like, I'm mind blown. We can all agree that Hitler's a pretty bad guy, but I just really relish the thought that they're like, hmm, we could trick him with an eyelash, couldn't we? Like, these men are just sitting around these secret spies and going, well, I've got an idea, George. (laughs) Very impressive. (laughs) Give me your eyelash, George. A message was sent by Leslie Hollis, the secretary of the Chiefs of Staff Committee, to Churchill, who was in the United States at the time. The message read, quote, mincemeat swallowed rod, line, and sinker by the right people, and from the best information, they look like they're acting on it, end quote. Boom. I can decipher that. It means the plan worked, right? Yes. <laughs> Very good detective skills, Annie. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Okay, so they, it's, I like how they talk in code. Well. Someone in Spain certainly did open that envelope and pass information on to Germany because in May, when a grand admiral named Karl Donitz met with Hitler to discuss the progress of the war and Operation Mincemeat, well, except that they had named it or renamed it the Anglo-Saxon Order, referring to the documents on Major Martin's body. He informed them of an upcoming reinforcement of troops and a planned attack on Greece. So they took this so seriously that they're like, mm, we're taking this right to the top. We're going to go talk to Hitler directly about this. Karl reported back after his meeting that Hitler does not agree with Mussolini, that the most likely invasion point is Sicily. Furthermore, he believes that the discovered Anglo-Saxon order confirms that the assumption the planned attacks will be directed mainly against Sardinia and Greece. So... That's a lot of words, right? Mm -hmm, Let's mm kind of backtrack and break that down. So all this information comes to Hitler. And at the time, we have the German forces, we have Italian forces, and we have Japanese forces all working in cahoots against Allied forces. So over in Italy, he's like, um, Hitler calls up Mussolini. He's like, what do you think about this? This is the new information. And Mussolini is like, no, I'm not buying it. I don't think that this is quite right. But Hitler, being the egotistical little shit that he is, was like, nah, my opinion is what matters. And so he decides, forget what Mussolini thinks. We're going with what I think, and I'm trusting these documents. We need to move everything over to Greece because that's where they're coming, and they're going to try to basically gang up with the Soviets to trap us. So we had one guy saying, nope, we're not going to do that, like... I wonder if Mussolini and Mussolini, kudos to you for saying it all episodes, it's hard to say. Do you think he thought it was a, it was staged? You know, it doesn't say one way or the other when I was doing the research, but there was obviously a lot of distrust Mm -hmm. um, between Hitler and everyone. Yeah. So it was Hitler's way of the highway. So whatever Mussolini thought about this, it was Hitler was going to be the one to tell you, he's kind of top dog. So he's going to tell you what's going to happen. Hitler told Mussolini himself that Greece and Sardinia had to be defended at all costs and he moved troops from France to Greece. By the end of the month, the German troops had doubled in Greece with 10,000 troops, plus aircrafts and torpedo boats, U-boats, everything moved from Sicily to the Greek islands to prepare for this invasion. The Allied invasion of Sicily, named Operation Husky, again, (laughs) I just, where did they come up with these original names? But Operation Husky was launched on July 9th, 1943, and as intended, proved to be a huge surprise to the German troops. In just over a month, the island was fully captured by the Allies, and the lack of enemy reinforcements had proven to be truly the deciding factor in the success. The British expected 10,000 people to be killed or wounded in just the first week of fighting, but only a seventh of that number became casualties, which is a lot. Mm-hmm. But it's not 10,000. The Navy expected at least 300 ships would be sunk in action. They only lost 12. They predicted that this would be a 90-day campaign. It was over in 38 days, and the Allied forces officially took over Italy. So successful. And without gaining access to Europe through Sicily, who knows where the outcome of World War II would have been? And while obviously there's many factors that went into play to get the Allied forces into Europe, Operation Mincemeat is credited by most historians as the single greatest deception of Hitler. 
Germany surrendered in World War II on May 7, 1945, and World War II would officially come to an end on September 2, 1945. So that is the story of Operation Mincemeat. All my references will be listed in the blog as always. But Annie. That's fascinating. Hitler screwed up over an eyelash. Ah, the eyelash. What about the body, though? He was buried, and while he didn't get to amount to much in his life, he actually was given full military honors, and still his grave says to the man that never was, they have it on his tombstone that he served as Major Martin. I love that. But they have replaced it with what they believe to be his true identity now, but with those markers. It's just so crazy to me that the original idea for this was thought to be written by the author who would go on to give us 007. That man's brain. Well, it's just... I want it. In all reality, this is an unbelievable story. Truly. Truly unbelievable. It sounds like it's fiction, but it's obviously not. It's not. Again, that's the story of Operation Mincemeat, but Annie and I were talking a little bit prior to this episode, and the weather has shifted here in Denver. Spooky season. (laughs) I'm so excited. I have my fall candles out. I am wearing all sorts of earth tones all of a sudden and black because black will, you know, always be in rotation. Always. But we have decided that we are going to come to you a little differently for the month of October and bring you lots of spooky historical stories, paranormal stories. Yes, we're going to be talking about some horrific murders that happen, but we want to just enjoy October for what it is. So I hope that you guys are going to stick along with us, be interested in that. We have have a lot of upcoming exciting announcements, so please make sure you're following us on Instagram at a case of the Sunday scaries. And Just be prepared for a lot of spooky-ooky things coming your way for the month of October. As always, you can check out our website and submit your own paranormal stories, share some creepy things and experiences that have happened to you. But until then, 